Our scripture reading comes to us from the book of Genesis. I've adjusted um, a little bit what we will read. We will begin in chapter 2 and verse 7, and we'll read into chapter 3, verse 7. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, that it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, And be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, 
You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. This far, our scripture reading, and our focus will be on well, specifically chapter 3 and verse 1. where we can read verse 1 again, where it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? As we now continue our series and study and looking in temptations, we have in the past weeks considered how Scripture calls us to prepare for temptations, to be ready for when they come, knowing that we will face them, knowing that we cannot avoid life with them. But God has also encouraged us to endure temptations, that He has said He will not allow us to be tempted more than we are able to bear, and that also with every temptation, he also gives a way of escape. And what is more, we see that even the Lord Jesus Christ, who had no sin, was subjected to temptations. But will we look for a way of escape if we do not realize or do not think that we are in a position of temptation? Well, do we ever look for a way of escape if we don't think we are stuck, trapped? We don't. If we see no danger, if we see no fear, and then we do not think we need to get out of the situation. And so now as we continue to study, we want to turn, we, we looked mainly at trials, the, the, the temptations which are trials in our life, which God brings to test us in our life, and now we want to switch to look more closely at temptations specifically to sin, temptations that lead us to sin. And the first example in Scripture is one that we read here where Satan tempts Eve to disobey God, to disobey by eating the forbidden fruit. And what we want to consider today specifically is how Satan sets up this temptation, how Satan prepares to present this temptation. Because he does not want anyone to escape. He does not want you to see the temptation and to be able to escape or run from it. A number of years ago, a friend of mine took me fishing. He was into fly fishing, and so we were, we were walking down a stream, and then suddenly he said, now we have to stay low, we have to go quietly until we are close enough to the edge, to the pool of water where he can cast in the line. 
Because he said if you, if you just walk beside the water and the fish see you, they will scatter and it will spoil your chances. And similarly, the, the fly that they cast into the water, the hook, is, is a replica. It's made to replicate a real animal. It, it's also used to, to deceive or to, to cover up what it really is so that they think it's, it's food. Another example is if any of you have ever gone goose hunting, it takes a lot of preparation to, to get ready for, for, for a hunt. You have to put in a lot of planning because geese are very wise. Geese have good eyesight. And if they suspect anything out of the ordinary, they won't even come close. And you won't have a chance at shooting them. And so before you go hunting, you need to plan. You, you need to scope out the area. You need to look at what time the geese come. You need to know where exactly they're landing, what they're feeding on. And then you need to go there very early in the morning, much before the geese would come. You need to camouflage yourself. You need to disguise yourself so that they don't see you. You need to hide in some of the natural vegetation that's there so they don't find you. Because if a goose sees a hunter at all, even if it just sees something unusual, it won't come close and it'll fly away. The hunter is setting up a trap for the goose. And temptations do exactly the same thing, except you and I are being hunted. But Paul said that we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, lest he should get an advantage of us. God shows us and teaches us what we have to look for. Geese have a natural instinct for survival. But God teaches us what we need to look for. And so our theme this morning is the first temptation to sin. That's what it says in your bulletin, but I had to adjust it a little bit, and we'll focus just this morning just on the setup, the first temptation to sin with the, the setup of it. And so our first thought is that temptations come to everyone. That might seem obvious, but it's something we need to say. Temptations will come to every one of us. See, the hunter is not very discerning, you might say, when he, when he sets up for geese. He doesn't care which goose comes in as long as the geese come in. Every goose that comes close will be a target for him. And so temptations also, they, they don't only signal, single, single out a few people in the world, but it comes to everyone, to, to good people, to bad people, and wherever you are or whoever you are. Here, it's Eve who's being tempted. Eve who had no sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was tempted, and he had no sin. Even if you or I are a perfect person without sin, which is impossible, we will face temptations. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, what country, what place, what, part of, what time of history. Temptations have come since, be, since here in paradise, and they will be in this world till the end of time. And so this is the first recorded temptation here in Genesis 3. And if we see who Eve was, Eve had no knowledge of evil. She had a perfect will, 
a perfect ability to be able to obey God. She had never been tempted before, as far as we know. She had no concept of what would really happen if she sinned. And in a way, this seemed like the perfect target for Satan, the perfect place he could set up. Here it seems like Satan has an advantage because he could catch her at a complete surprise. She has no idea what a temptation is. And similarly, if you go hunting, usually it's the first day of hunting season when animals are not aware yet that it's hunting season. That's usually the best time to catch the animals by surprise, to catch them off guard. But Eve also had the best defense. She had the truth, the Word of God, more perfectly than we do now. Because Eve lived in in a complete harmony with God, with union and communion with God and with Adam. Eve believed God perfectly and unequivocally. She loved God with all her heart, her mind, her strength, and her soul. And she loved her neighbor as herself, the only neighbor, Adam, her husband. They esteemed one another above each other, above themselves. They had no complaints, they had no disunity, they had no arguments, they had no lack, they had no sickness, they had no, no pain. And so they also had no reason to eat the forbidden fruit. They had no sinful desire towards it, they had no sinful inclination towards it, like we do now. But she could obey God perfectly, with a willing heart, with unquestioning with an unquestioning heart. There was never a doubt in her mind that God's will was good and right. There was never a doubt in her mind about God's goodness. And yet the temptation came to her. And the reason that temptation came to her and the reason temptations come to you and to me is only to cause us, to to try to make us sin against God, to turn us away from God. And so temptations come to us in the same way. The difference with us is we also have a sinful inclination towards sin and towards the evil and the allurement of this world. And so we have a weakness in us towards sin before the temptation even finds us. But Adam and Eve were created with a will that was able to obey, which up to that point they had, but it was also created with the ability to disobey. God had created them with a true free will. Our hearts, as we are born into this world, cannot obey God unless we are born again. And so temptation comes to us all. It came to the first people in the world. It came to the wisest and the richest, like Solomon. It came to the most godly people, the meekest of all people, the Bible says, was Moses, who God talked with face to face. It came to David, who was a man after God's own heart. And temptations will come to us in many different ways, in many different times, young or old. And that's why the Lord Jesus said, watch and pray. 
that you do not enter into temptations. And that's what we especially need to, we especially need to watch because in the second place we'll see that temptations come in disguise. Part of the setup is that they come in disguise. The, the tempter disguises himself and the temptations are disguised. When you go fishing, if any of you do, you know that the, the hook is always covered with something attractive. That hook needs to be hidden, otherwise they will see it and most likely not bite it. Bite it. it needs to be disguised. When you go goose hunting, you need to wear camouflage. You need to hide in the reeds or a hunting blind. You don't want that goose to see you at all. Even if it sees your eyes or if it sees a, a little movement, they will detect you and they will flee from you. And so the, the temptation needs to be disguised in order to be successful. If you know it's a temptation, would you step into it? If you know it's a temptation to sin against God, would you stick around to fall into that trap? No. So temptations need to be disguised in order to be successful. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. We don't even read Satan's name here, but it says serpent. The serpent was more cunning. That means he was more crafty, more able to deceive, even though there was no sin in the world itself. But Satan is behind it all. So God shows us that Satan is the great deceiver. That as, that as he hides behind the serpent, he, he's putting on a mask, he's putting on a disguise, he's coming in, this, in the form of the serpent to tempt Eve. And so the temptations that we'll face will, will never appear to be a temptation. And Satan, that hunter, will never show himself. He is the master soul hunter. Matthew 4 calls him the tempter. John 8 verse 44 calls him the father of lies. 2 Corinthians 11 says he disguises himself as an angel of light, portraying himself to be good itself when he is evil. And so here he uses a serpent, the, the most cunning animal, to sneak up to Eve. He, he found the most suitable camouflage so that he could slither up to Eve unnoticed for his purpose, and he could slip away just as quickly. If you ever watch snakes, I find it amazing how they move. Even their movement is deceptive. Because if you look at a snake in the middle of the body, it doesn't look like it's moving, and yet before you know it, it's gone. If you try to hit it with a stick, usually you miss, because you, are, you think you're aiming for the middle sec midsection, but it's moving when you don't really notice it, and, and it slips out of your sight. And so temptations will come in forms that we do not expect. Temptations will always come dressed in some kind of a slippery disguise. They'll, they'll move around in such a way that we cannot get a clear sight on them. They're instigated directly or indirectly by Satan, the father of lies. And temptations are always meant to deceive us. 
He is the great deceiver. Revelation 12 verse 9 says that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast out of heaven and now he deceives the world until he will be cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, as Matthew 25 says. And so now in this world, he goes around as a roaring lion, as a wolf in sheep's clothes, wearing, coming, going around as an angel of light. He's in the same business today as he was here in the Garden of Eden. That is to deceive you and to turn you away from God. And so the purpose of a hunting blind for the hunter is to be able to get as close as possible to the prey, to the victim. And here Satan uses the serpent to get as close as possible to Eve so that he can to get as close as possible without being discovered. And that's the same with temptation. It comes right up next side, right up beside us in forms that we do not recognize, where we least expect it. It will come in various forms of disguise. Satan used Judas, the disciple of the Lord Jesus. He used Peter, an even closer disciple, to try to tempt Jesus, turn him away from going to the cross. And he said, this will not happen to you, Lord. But the Lord Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Satan used Solomon's wives to turn from God and to commit idolatry. Here, Adam was tempted by his wife, Eve, his gift from God, the only other person on the earth who was created to be his helper, the one suitable to him, made from his own rib. They were one in marriage. And that's where Satan comes. Hezekiah was tempted to sin with his pride, but the temptation came dressed up in congratulations and gifts from the Babylonians. And he said, we heard you got better from your sickness. Here, receive our praise. The Israelites were tempted to doubt God, but it was dressed up in spies who came back from the promised land and said, the enemies are too strong. Doubt God because we can never fight against them. Israel was tempted to sin and engage in immoral behavior, but it was dressed up in a feast, in a welcoming party with the neighbors, the Moabites. They said, come, join us. This is why we must watch and pray so we can detect temptations. And that is why Paul said, Take heed, you who think you stand, lest you fall. Because it's when we think we stand that he is most able to come up beside us and speak his evil. Abortion is murder disguised as choice or woman's rights. Adultery is not shown to be blatant sin. Nobody proposes you to say, here, cheat on your wife. But first it's set up, there's divisions, there's some disagreements, there's some dissatisfactions, there's some emptiness. And then it's disguised as someone who comes along and says, I can feel that need. I can feel that void in your life. Temptations come in disguises 
at the most opportune time. And they come to us in ways that we least expect through our spouse, through our children, through our friends, through our co-workers. When Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray so they would not enter into temptation, they fell asleep. And that's our challenge as well. How do we live in this world staying awake, staying watchful, looking out for temptation that is hiding right next to us. But we also need to remember that God remains faithful and that His Word says that temptation is not what can make you sin. It's not the temptation or Satan who can make you sin. They can try. They can make propositions to you. See, during hunting season, the animals become very wary, very careful, and very shy. But you are being hunted. We are being hunted every day. We need to be wary of Satan's devices. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So God gives us his word to expose and to uncover his methods and the temptations. We have the same truth that Eve had, although not in the same capacity as she had, but we have it in written form, which God says is a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we take well to take heed as a light that shines in the darkness. This is what we need to shed light upon the darkness around us that we would see the temptation. But then thirdly, temptations come to our weakest point. We need to be on guard because temptations never attack us where we are strong, but they come to where we are weak. It's all about that setup. It's all about the preparations. When you hunt or fish, it's about the right time, it's about the right place and the right method. You wait near their favorite food source or their place of safety. You find where they are most vulnerable, where, they're most, where they are most likely to go. And so your success depends largely on that setup, that timing, that location, that all must work together. And so here Satan chooses his first victim, Eve. Verse 1 says, And he said to the woman, You notice he does not go to Adam. Because in chapter 2, verse 16, what we read, God gave Adam this command. God said, Of every tree, and the Lord God commanded a man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then Adam had to tell this to his wife. But Adam is the one who received it from God. In chapter 2, verse 15, Adam was commanded to tend the garden and to keep it. That was his work. That was his duty. But in chapter 1, verse 28, God commanded them, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and to, be, and to multiply, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Now, this is something Adam could not do by himself. He had the responsibility But he needed Eve in order to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth 
and to have dominion over it. But Satan doesn't go to Adam. He does not start in the strongest place. 1 Peter 3, verse 7 says, The husband must dwell with their wife with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Satan comes to Eve, knowing that's the better approach. But Satan also comes to Eve at the most opportune time. He finds her alone when Adam is not with her. When Adam's not there to help her, when Adam's not there to remind her of what God said, when Adam's not there to defend her, protect her, or watch over her, to have dominion over the animals, but he comes to her when she's alone. He comes to Eve at an opportune place where she's most vulnerable, near the tree where she can easily be tempted. And so temptations come to us at a time when you are most vulnerable, and it will be aimed at your weakest spot. The hunter always wants the animal to come as close as possible to the blind. That gives the greatest chance of success. Or if you've ever watched those Videos of in Africa where the lions will be stalking a, a herd of, of zebras or so. They're, they're crouching in the sidelines or hiding in the shadows until, until one of the zebras drifts off. It, it wanders off alone. Or if there's a sick one or a young one that, that strays behind the herd. Then at the right time, at the right place, they all run and they pounce on this one animal who is alone. They have found that one critical opportunity. And Satan will be sure to find your weak points. When are you most vulnerable? When do you find yourself alone? When is it when you feel lonely or neglected? Maybe depressed. Maybe tired. Hungry. Maybe alone in your grief and you feel isolated from others when, you're not able, when others are not able to relate with you. Satan finds our weaknesses. He tries to split up churches. He wants you to isolate. To have Zoom gatherings instead of public worship. To keep you alone, to keep you vulnerable, to keep you depressed, to keep you in darkness. He doesn't want you to build each other up. He does not want you to support each other with the Word, to defend each other, to watch over each other, to encourage each other, to pray for each other. But alone, like a coal taken out of a fire, quickly dies down, so we will also. He tries to split up marriages. He knows husbands are there to care for the spiritual, emotional, physical, and mental well-being of their wives but he attacks marriages at the periphery from angles that we don't expect. He brings something in between the wife and the husband, whatever little petty thing that begins to build up. 
He wants you to go sit in a corner by yourself. He wants you to give the cold shoulder, to, to split up that communication, to break that, that, that the strength of marriage, that, that bond, that unity. He wants you to go sit somewhere so that he can slither up to you with his propositions. He wants you working late at night in your office, grumbling, complaining that you don't want to go home. Because that's when he can bring someone in to fill that emptiness that you might have in your heart. He carefully chooses the time to tempt you. He carefully selects the place where you will go. And that's where he sets up his hunting blind. And that's why we need to be careful, especially young people, where we go where we place ourselves, where we go into this world where we don't want to be seen by family or friends. Doesn't it seem like the only time someone cuts you off in traffic is after a hard day of work, when you're tired, when you're stressed, and you're already on edge? But you notice the driver doesn't veer in front of you and say, swear at me and, and get angry. But it's disguised in the camouflage of a poor driver, a reckless driver, at just that calculated time to tempt you to sin. See, Satan researches where we are prone to yield. In Job, it said he, God asked him where he came from. He said, from going back and forth on the earth, observing Job. He goes around this world observing your patterns. Advertising companies track what you look at, where you shop, so they can target you with specific ads. Satan observes where you shop for sin. Satan observes what you covet in this world. Satan observes where you slip the most, and he'll mark it to your weakness. That's where he hides in the grass, waiting for you to come walking by so he can bite you in the heel and make you fall. In the church, in the home, our temptations don't come to us where we are strong, but they'll sneak in quietly. In the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, God commended them for their strengths, but he warned them about their weaknesses because that's where they will fall. John Owen, if I have the right person, he had a cat, and he liked to study. And the cat always wanted to go inside and come back out, uh, out go back outside, but it bothered him from a study so often he was, he, he said, I need to do something about this. So he cut a hole in the bottom of his door to make a cat door so the cat can go in and out freely by himself. But it didn't take him long to realize that it wasn't just a cat that was coming in and out. So were the rats. And so it is in our church. And so it is in our homes. Along with everything else comes the rats of sin and temptation. Yes, our families might function well, we might teach them diligently, 
but then some, some, suddenly our children bring something home that we would never invite into our houses willingly. They hear words. They hear ideas. They receive gifts. Uh, they listen to music that's from the world. And it's harder to control what children take home. It's more difficult to remove. And it always comes in a disguise. And the first question they're often to ask is, why? What's wrong with it? And do you see where we start? If you're a goose, and you come flying in, and you see the hunter blind in the field that you usually go to eat, and your first question is, why? What's wrong with it? And you go and land beside that blind, and you say, well, prove it that the blind is bad you won't even make it to the ground because you will die. And so why is it that our first question always is in defense of the evil, if that's what it is? What's wrong with it? Prove it to me that it's wrong so that we fly in like a goose until someone can prove it that this is wrong and trips us into sin. Similarly, doubts, heresies, suspicions slither into the church as through the back door or the rat door. And so often our stance is, why? What's wrong with it? Why can't we do this? The current example might be the infiltration of the LGBT, etc. ideologies. They don't start at the top. They never have. For years they have been infiltrating your hearts and minds. Where? Subtly in TV shows, in ads, in various places, in, in reading programs that the government puts in in the parks in the summers where they can drop off your children and they'll sneak in a book. They'll drop these seeds of doubt. But then it becomes more calculated. At the right time, at the right place, they bring these in. Then there's husbands who are he heads of the household. And there's times that the husbands must stand up to the wife or children according to God's Word to limit, to restrict, to correct something that contradicts God's Word. Just as it was for Adam, this is difficult. When, it, when things come in subtly, when someone near you has already eaten of that fruit and says, here, what's wrong with it? We must be aware of Satan's devices. It's difficult to resist or combat or even detect temptations to sin when they come to us through such close, disguised instruments. And it's so difficult because of the nature and the tenderness of the relationships that he uses. Think of Adam and Eve how close that bond was. He knows, the tempter knows where it is difficult for us to broach these kind of subjects. Because he knows as soon as we begin talking about something that questions something, immediately sparks begin to fly. How dare you accuse me? He knows where our sins will flare up, even just speaking with each other about these things how careful we need to be 
to remain grounded in God's Word. And so Satan sets it up in such a way that there seems to be no way out. And it appears that we have to submit, that we have to go along with the temptation. He's very deliberate in his setup. That's his intention, to get you to willingly step into it because you don't see what is wrong or the other people don't see what is wrong. He's very careful so that will be effective. And unfortunately, so often it is. So often it's easier just to glide in instead of looking for a different place. And to say, well, really, what is wrong with that? But what awaits you is the barrels of a shotgun. But God has said, He knows how to deliver the righteous from temptation. He said that He will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able to bear, but that with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape. And that is what we need to remember. Jesus Christ has exposed Satan as a great deceiver. He has conquered and defeated him. He gives us his Holy Spirit and he gives us his word of truth, the sword of the Spirit, by which we must defend ourselves and drive him away as well. He has given us the communion of saints, the body of Christ, to help one another, to remind one another, husbands and wives, to build each other up, to, to support one another, to Speak Scripture to one another. And here is our foundation and our guide. The infallible Word of God. The standard of truth. And this is where we need to begin. And this is what Eve wavered from. And this is where we begin departed from. We have already departed from the truth. And we must anchor ourselves in the Word and not allow ourselves to be pulled any further away or any one of the herd, so to speak, to drift away where we become vulnerable. Our first reaction, like I said earlier, so often is what's wrong with it. We come to the defense of the temptation. We're defending and siding with it as if there is nothing wrong with it. And now, the, and, now the, and now the responsibility of Scripture is to prove to us that this is wrong. But if we do that, if you were a goose, you would long be dead. We must take the other approach. And we must stand in Scripture. And that as a goose flies over, even from a distance he sees something suspicious, stay as far away as we can. And first, anchor ourselves in the Word of God, and then say, how can we measure that in light of Scripture? Can we approach any closer to it without being hurt? Our, our approach should not be what's wrong with it, but what in the sight of God's Word is right with it. Is it safe? Is it true? Is it right? Is it just? Or is it causing us to pull away from God's Word and from God Himself? 
Now, I know this might cause some people to refrain from certain things for conscience sake, but is it better to fly away and live or to go to the hunting blind and get shot? Cautious approach seems wiser. And so we must ground ourselves in the Word of God so that as the Lord Jesus Christ himself did when he faced temptations, he could say, it is written. This is the Word of God. This is our basis where we must start from. And everything must be gauged from that starting point. Then we can begin to see what we can approach or not. This is the setup that Satan prepares to cause us to enter into temptation. He wants to deceive us, to disguise a temptation, to make it look attractive and appealing so that we don't recognize it before we step our foot into it. And this is what we must be able to discover if we do not want to fall. Now this brings us to the end of verse 1, the end of the setup, and the next week we want to consider further in this passage when Satan is in the position, when Satan is at the right time, at the right place, then he starts with the temptation itself. And that's what we'll consider next week.